welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. As part of our series on the elements of Lent, let's hear from Reverend Dr. E.B. Arnold as he talks about water. All right, so tonight what I wanted us to talk about was um, it's really more of a, a literary look um, because I really think that it, that this is the, the, the way to kind of see not just where water shows up in the biblical story, but rather like the broader categories of what it tends to symbolize or what it tends to mean. Uh, and I and what I want us to do is is start in the Old Testament in each one and kind of get uh, a trajectory of how this develops into the New Testament. And then at the end, maybe see how all of these different categories of how water is used and sort of what it's nodding to or what it means, how they actually might work together. And I think that this might give us a lot to think about during Lent. So the first aspect that I think we see of water, and we touched on this last week when we were talking about spirit, is, is that water is very often a symbol of something formative, that this is when God creates. Uh, you know, there in that very first creation story in Genesis 1, we know that in the beginning when God began to create, the earth was just covered with water. And so water is the raw materials. Uh, it's, it's the invitation, so to speak. And we know that when the spirit of God is hovering over water, that's the place where creation happens. So there's something really interesting and, and synthetic about what happens when God's spirit and water meet. And so whenever we're looking at a biblical story, when you see God or you see Jesus near water, that's really, I think, what comes to mind is that first Genesis story of, oh, when the spirit of God gets close to water, something new is going to be made. And like I said last week, what's interesting is right when that spirit meets the water and creation begins, we actually don't hear anything about the spirit after that for a while in the story. And so it's really interesting that it's right here in this moment. And then the first thing after making light that God does is he starts separating the waters. Let there be a dome, so to speak, and he makes a sky and separate seas. And then he gathers the seas and the rivers and the lakes and all of those things together. And what that does is it allows dry, dry ground to form. And so what's interesting here is that we're looking at the image of water as sort of this chaos. It's just the raw, uncut, unfiltered materials and God, when God's spirit joins up with this, all of the sudden, other things are made out of it. And so I think that that's really the almost foundational primary uh, image that we have is that water is formative. And I don't think it's also uh, any kind of um, a coincidence or an accident that that's also the image of birth that we get throughout the New and Old Testament. This image of coming out of the waters is a, is a birth image. Of, and of course, that's formation. That's how human beings and all, well, at least mammals, are formed in coming out of this water. In fact, we hear um, even not just in the creation story itself, but then when we get into the Psalms and the hymns of Israel, God's role as a creator um, as forming things is always connected with water. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He puts the deeps in storehouses. 
And so what this does is you can kind of picture this, that the, the, the writer of this psalm is seeing God storing each sea, each river, like a bottle on a shelf. And that that's how God stands in relation to these, that this is God's cabinet of ingredients. This is God's watercolor set, so to speak, that all of these things are not just these huge bodies that we see from our humanly perspective, but for God, these are the raw materials of making things and of fashioning the whole world together. Um, and especially, I think this is really interesting, is that the ancient Israelites, when we're looking at the Old Testament, they were not a water people. They were not a seagoing bunch. Uh, we have very little data, very little evidence that there were any kind of Israelite ships or, you know, any kind of warfare that takes place on the water. In fact, they're very much almost superstitious about it. You'll hear lots of psalms and lots of imagery of the sea is still that place that represents that primordial chaos, right? It's the unknown. It's all of these things. And yet in their poetry, now, although they don't like to associate with that in real life, like let's stay away from that. But in their poetry, in their hymns to God, God is the God of the sea who captures the water of the whole earth and just turns out amazing creations out of them. Even in the New Testament, the writers will revisit this notion. And in 2 Peter, which is one of the very latest, in fact, it's often assumed to be the very last uh, New Testament document to be written. And Peter writes, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. And so what's interesting is that water was the material, but it was also the method by which God used to make things. And what I love about this is that it means that chaos is just as important to God as his order. That these are two sides of a coin, that God looks at one side and says, I need that to get to this. And that that's what God loves to use. And I don't know if I can get an amen, but I know that if God can use the chaos of the world, he can use the chaos of my life as well. This is good news for all of us mortals, right? And then the Apostle Paul writes this, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. So here we get this notion of water, but it's specifically in this activity of baptism. And then what do we hear? There is no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, male and female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so here again, water is this sort of um, means of God creating something new. You have been essentially formed in this water and brought out of this water, and now you're formed according to Christ, and you're all formed according to Christ together. So not only is each individual a new creation, but this whole group of individuals that we call the church, that we call uh, humanity, they have come out of the water together. And so it's, it's almost like a creation in a creation. Another thing that we'll notice um, is a consistent use of water throughout the biblical narrative is that water is dangerous and it signifies death. Now, I know we kind of hinted at this, that this is definitely how at least the ancient Israelites understood 
the water as far as like the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea and all of these other big bodies of water, that's really dicey. Especially if you're not people that are great at making boats and you don't have a lot of skill with things like deep sea fishing or with any kind of combat on the water, being out on the open sea would be utterly terrifying. And so when we look at, again, one of those early creation stories, and we look back at the flood, and we understand that if this was one of your um, beginning introduction stories in God's creation of the world, that part of the creation was God destroying creation. And so notice how all of this notion of the water, and we tend to gloss over this when we have the story of Noah. Uh, we don't see this on coloring pages uh, for children's uh, Bible stories. You know, we see the animals and we see the ark, but notice how water is the instrument of death. The water swelled and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and domestic animals and wild animals, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all human beings. Do you hear those echoes of the Genesis story in chapter one? When God says, let, let, it, let the earth bring forth the swarming things that swarm and the crawling, creeping things that crawl and creep. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. And there that also harkens back to those early creation stories. God having breathed into something and now he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, they were blotted out from the earth. So just as much as water was the place out of which everything came into creation, here, just a mere six chapters later, water is the means by which the creation is decimated. However, that also is the place that he calls the dry land out of. And so what we kind of notice is that this death, dangerous aspect of water and the formative aspect of water are actually very cyclical. They go together. That whenever you have one thing that is brought up, it in turn is washed away in time and something else or a new version of itself comes out. Looking again to the Psalms, we hear this notion of water being this dangerous thing. Um, Psalm 69 says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And there that word flood brings us right back to this notion of the flood is something that is irresistible. It is not something that we can escape. This notion of uh, water being the power of God to kill is a very live thing throughout the Bible. And then finally, I think that very often when we're looking at water in smaller proportions, what we usually see is water being a symbol of God's provision and care. I love this story from Genesis where Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant or slave, is thrown out because she has had a child that was um, Isaac's, no, sorry, that was Abraham's child. <laughs> 
And Isaac comes along and now Sarah wants nothing to do with this kid, nothing to do with his mother, even though both the child and the mother have been used in order to give Abraham progeny. And so she is cast out into the desert with very little food and very little water. And Genesis 21 says that when the water in the skin was gone, she slid the child under a bush and went and sat down and said, I can't look at this. I can't watch my child die. And what happens, we, we know this story that God opens her eyes after calling her name and telling her not to be afraid. And she sees a well. And this well is not only something that rescues them from imminent death, you know, you have enough water to sustain you until you get to the next place that you need to be. But it's also this sort of vision of God's enduring provision that God makes wells in the desert. God is there to rescue the person who has been abused and rejected. And so water is this symbol of God's presence, God's divine care. When we see God rescue his people out of Egypt, he, along with Moses and Aaron and Miriam, bring the people into the wilderness. And of course, the problem is the exact same one that Hagar faced. They're thirsty and there is no water. And so doing what people do in such situations, they complain. And they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And I have to admit, I have read this story many, many times but I noticed something in it this time that I had never noticed before. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. So he's like, you use the same stick to hit the Nile and you turned it into blood. And we're going to take that same stick and we're also going to do something with water. Now, but I never heard this part. And in verse six, God says, I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. I find that so fascinating that I overlooked the fact that God explicitly points to and promises his presence. I won't just be in enabling you to do this. Like what happened in Egypt, God said, I'm going to send you and I'm going to enable you and I'm going to give you all this ability. And so Moses is very much this ambassador of God, an ambassador of God's presence. But here, God says, I want you to go there, but I will be standing there in front of you on the rock. And so this, this rock, you know, this just big boulder, suddenly leaking water is not only symbolic of God's presence, but was enabled by God's presence. And I just love that that's all there together in the story. And I wonder why I have overlooked that so many times. This is another uh, passage that I find really fascinating. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. And this is him speaking God's words. And God says, my people have committed two evils. They have, first of all, forsaken me. And I'm the fountain of living water. So on the one hand, they have rejected good water, something that's going to actually sustain them and provide for them. And then on the other hand, they've gone and dug their own wells and they're terrible. They dug out cisterns for themselves. 
cracked cisterns that can hold no water, you've both rejected something good and reached for something so inferior. But what's interesting is that God refers to his own self as the fountain of living water. I am the ultimate place of provision and the provision itself. And then, of course, we hear something very similar from Jesus when he meets the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. And he tells her, those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And what I love about this is John is also the gospel where Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit that will come and be their comforter, be the one that will provide the presence to them. And so again, we see the promise of God's presence and this promise of water, this promise of sustenance, of life, of what will allow them to fully flourish and to be sustained throughout whatever hardships. Because like you, so many of you have pointed out, many of these are wilderness stories, desert stories. And there's very few things in the desert more important than where are we going to find water? And so the fact that this is an, an ever-present theme throughout the Bible uh, speaks to that first element that we looked at, wilderness. We haven't left it behind while we're looking at water here in the Bible, but rather water is always going to be a concern for those who are in the wilderness. Now, I think that what happens in the notion of baptism in the New Testament might actually be combining all three of these particular ways that water can be used in the biblical stories and narratives and poetry. And we'll just talk about uh, a few snapshots that I think will give us a hint at it. Listen here where Paul says in Romans 6, 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I've been at lots of baptisms, and I've heard people talk about baptisms, and what I think is really interesting is we have a definite tendency to really skip over the death part. I mean, nobody is, is, is sad at baptisms. No one is weeping, like not tears of joy. Nobody is grieving at a baptism, like they are at a funeral. And what's fascinating is that Paul doesn't skip over that, but he actually slows down. Notice how he repeats the death part. Don't you know that we've been baptized into his death? Period. I mean, question mark, but period. Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death. That is the part that's repeated. So that we might walk in newness of life. Now, what's really interesting is that first part, we have been baptized into his death. It has been done. So we might walk in newness of life. That's in the subjunctive, in the realm of possibility. But folks, 
I really believe what Paul is, in, is, is reinforcing here is the notion of the only true reality that we are completely assured of right now is that we have been baptized into his death. And that is the foundational aspect of our identity as Christ followers. We have conformed to the death of Christ. And so what's interesting is Christians have used this water activity, this water event to be a depiction of death. And we can't skip over that. We have to remember that there is danger in the water. There is death in the water. Someone has been buried here, has been drowned. That is no less an element that's here in the water than is new life and purity and being washed clean. All those other wonderful and very true aspects of it. But the death comes first. It comes foremost. And I think for Paul, it is the absolute uh, piece that is non-negotiable. We might be raised from the dead someday. We are trusting in God for that. At the end of every conflict, we might find transformation. But until any of that happens and before any of it can happen, we must conform to the crucified Christ. And all of this in the water of baptism. Um, this is one of those poor little books in the New Testament that gets very little love. <laughs> but Titus tells us in chapter three that Jesus saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. And then I love this part, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so here we also see that, um, that aspect of formation. It's through the water. It's by means of the water that we have come into being a new creation, a new human being or a new community of people. And so we see the death part of water, this danger of you are going to risk a lot and you might get in over your head. But we also see this notion that this is the stuff that God is always working with. This is the, this is the Play-Doh of God. God works with water and through water in order to create new things. And that's exactly what Titus says, how all of us have become new, is he has done this through means of water. And then finally, in Revelation, we hear this, the one seated on the throne said, see, I'm making all things new. Do you see how that works? I'm making a new creation. But then he says, to the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And there we get this element of provision. And I think that when we look at all three of these, what we're really looking at is baptism. Because when we talk about him saving us through the water of rebirth and renewal, Titus is talking, or excuse me, Paul is talking to Titus about baptism. And when we're looking at this Revelation 21, there are all these people coming to this river of life, coming to this river of life. And it says that they are all washed clean. There is still here this notion of baptism as God providing the water that quenches the ultimate thirst of human beings. All of them coming together in community, all of them becoming new creations, all of them living as human beings were intended to live together and before God.
Now, I want to share with you something that I think demonstrates this. And sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words because it's also really important, I think, to know how they thought of baptism in the early church. And so if you look at this picture, this is uh, from the first couple centuries of Christianity and how they depicted baptism. And this right here is the baptism of Jesus. Now, what's really interesting, and this is all according to like it's almost perfectly laid out according to all of the early church documents about how you go about baptizing people. Um, the candidate would always be naked. Okay, kind of glad we stayed away from that. No. Um, and you would always enter into the water from the left side and you would always exit the water on the right side. And in our church, when we do baptisms, because, you know, we're Baptists and we get like down in all the water, we still do this. You always come in from the left and you always exit from the right. And what you see here is that John the Baptist is on the left and there are angels on the right. And what this symbolizes is that you're leaving behind the, this, this, you know, existence of, um, of flesh, of sin, um, of mundane whatever. And then on the other side is the divine, is God. And what I think is really interesting about this is that first and foremost, one of the reasons that Jesus is naked and that a lot of the early Christians were naked is because you were being reborn. And just like coming out of the womb, you are reborn. But Jesus particularly is also intended to be crafted as the new Adam. And so the same image we get of Adam being naked in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus is. And notice there's all of these um, fish and turtles and what looks like a dragon. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they had back in the waters back then. Um, but And so it's a very creation-esque uh, depiction of this. And so we understand that here water and baptism is very much understood as this formative, this is how God creates a new earth and a new human race. All of this comes out of the waters of baptism. And the fact that he's left his cloak on the left side and that the angels are waiting to give him his white robe. And that's exactly what they would do for baptism candidates is that you would get a white robe. This is that provision aspect that God and God's messengers or whomever, God's kingdom, God's community is there to provide for the one emerging from the waters. And of course we know that it is very much symbolized by death, which is why you can't go back to the left side because you have died and you have departed from that. That resurrection or new life is not simply a, a, a resuscitation of your old life. You know, there's no zombie Christianity where we just sort of revivify your old life and because that's frightening and creepy. Um, but when you come out on the other side, you have in essence completely severed yourself from that previous side. And so here in this, early church depiction of the baptism of Jesus, we see all these things, creation, destruction, God's provision, all of these things together, telling us that the way that we're interacting with this idea of water and baptism and all the ways that God's people have understood it is something that was living in their minds as well. And so when we come to those waters of baptism, when we come to the waters that destroy and create and the waters that sustain us and quench us, 
we're coming to the same water. And so I hope that you find encouragement by that. I hope that especially as we're here in Lent and this baptism of Jesus and his subsequent temptation in the wilderness, that's the beginning of our Lenten pilgrimage. That's where the story really kicks off there. And so here we see all of not only uh, these themes in that early story, but we also see all of those other elements that we've been gathering along the way. The wilderness and the God that provides water in the wilderness. And the spirit that both throws us out into the wilderness uh, in order for us to make our way after Jesus, but the spirit is also hovering over the waters and making new things come to life.